Hi, my name is Mark. Some of you probably have seen me up here um, giving announcements and stuff from time to time. Um, along with Aaron, I'm on the ministry team here at Warehouse. And it's really my privilege to be invited to share God's Word with you tonight. So, um, I want to get into it, but first I want to take a, a little zoom out and, and remind us again that we're going through a series. And the series is on the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. So, to kind of reframe it a little bit, um, one of the key things that we need to understand here, first and foremost, actually is in verse 21. So, or in verse 20. So, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 20. And if you had your Bibles or your iPhones or any other electronic gizmos, um, feel free to have a look at that and keep it out because I'm going to be pointing you back here at various points tonight. So Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then from there he goes into uh, what we're going to focus on tonight. Well, I want to explain a little bit about this idea of the kingdom of heaven, because that really is the backdrop for everything that we're talking about. You see, the kingdom of heaven, I guess sometimes when we read that we just think, we just skip the kingdom of part and we just think heaven. We're thinking, oh, Jesus is telling us, how to go to heaven. And so, a lot of times, as Christians in this culture, we think heaven is this far away, floaty place where people kind of drift around on clouds and play harps and wear choir robes, all that are in white. Um, but that's not really what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Now, Matthew writes to Jews, and so in this culture, in this time, the word for God was a very sacred word. And so the Jewish people would find ways to sort of talk around it because it's so holy to say God's name that you want to re- reference it in sort of a roundabout way. Uh, so they would say the kingdom of heaven instead. So what Matthew's saying is kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. And if you are familiar with uh, the other writers of the New Testament, Mark and Luke, who also wrote stories about Jesus, You'll notice there's this theme in all three of those books about Jesus that he's constantly coming back to this idea of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. He's always telling people how to get into the kingdom of God. And like I said, it's not this dreamy, floaty place that's far away and maybe you'll get there if you die. I mean, we've all heard the jokes, right, about so, you know, a priest and a rabbi and a pastor all go to the pearly gates and there stands St. Peter and he says... Um, okay, to get in, you have to ask me one, you have to answer one question, right? And so we get this, it's funny, but that's kind of what we think about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That there's Peter at the pearly gates, and you don't get there until you die, or Jesus comes back, or whatever it is that is this final event. But let me tell you for a second that Jesus wasn't really about that. If you read the Bible, and you read what he teaches... He doesn't say, be a good person so that someday St. Peter will let you pass the pearly gates. He says stuff like we're reading today, and he says a whole bunch of other things that are really challenging, not about earning our way to heaven, but about how we live in community with one another. He talks about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is like a piece of fabric. If you look at it closely, it's all these little threads. Just a whole bunch of individual little threads that are woven together until you get this big, intricate design of interconnectedness. This, this giant community, this network of, of harmony and peace and beauty. Shalom is the Hebrew word that you've probably all heard. It's the Hebrew greeting. And that's the idea with the kingdom of God. It's something that is 
um, a, a giant network of connectedness and beauty and meaning. That's the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says that unless your righteousness passes the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter into it, he's not talking someday, he's talking right now. He said, I came to establish this network, this movement, this countercultural revolution, and I want to invite you to be a part of it. But you can't be a part of it if you live the way the rest of the world does, because it's going to look different. Matthew writes a lot about this, obviously. And in chapters 5 to 7, what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, the section that we're going through as a church, we see that Jesus, this is Jesus' magnum opus on the kingdom of God. More than probably any other section of Scripture, this is the condensed version of Jesus' teachings on the kingdom and what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. We had our introduction a couple of weeks ago talking about Jesus saying, blessed are the poor and the weak and the lonely and the persecuted because they're actually the ones who are going to get this idea. And then last week, Carol talked to us about how being a part of this kingdom is, is important for us to be salt and light. Today, we start into the section that is six case studies that Jesus gives. He's saying, you want to be a part of the kingdom? Here's what it looks like in this area, and this area, and this area, and this area. So, section one, he says, here's how you enter into the kingdom of God. Here's how you join the movement. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And so, having all known our Old Testament um, Ten Commandments background, we say, oh yeah, we know about that one, thou shalt not murder, right? In the... King James. Um, and we kind of look at ourselves and say, well, you know, I really haven't killed anybody, so that's good. Like, I guess I'm a pretty good candidate for entering into the kingdom of heaven. But then Jesus keeps talking, which can be a little tricky sometimes because we thought we had it. And he says, but I tell you. He says a couple of things. He says, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Oh, that's some heavy stuff. Let me translate a few of those things. First, the word anger here is not like anybody who ever has the emotion of anger is in bad shape. Uh, This is a specific kind of anger. This is like a simmering, seething kind of anger. The kind of anger that we hold on to and we don't let go. This, nursing a grudge would be this kind of anger that he's talking about. The other uh, things we better translate are the word raka and the word fool. Um, unless Mr. T is in the house, nobody's probably said fool to anybody recently, I'm guessing. Uh, but you know what that one means. It's an insult. And the other one, raka, this is modern translation, airhead, jerk, moron, idiot. That's basically what it is. So, all of a sudden, Jesus is up the ante. And when we had first read this, like, do not murder thing, we thought we were okay. But it, when I get down to this next one, I said, oh, dang, we're busted. Like, I'm not such a good candidate after all. I had to, all I had to make it through was six little case studies of Jesus, and on case study number one, I'm in trouble. I've heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Yeah, well, Jesus is saying the opposite. That words can be daggers. That it's not just about murdering somebody's body. That if you are a candidate for destroying somebody through your words or what you say or how you do, that it's not just about killing them. You're actually deteriorating the fabric of the kingdom of God and how you treat people, your attitudes towards them. 
That's because it's not just the full-grown tree that's the problem, it's the seeds. Because in the seed is everything that will become of that tree. And if we have those seeds inside of us, sooner or later those seeds will germinate and before you know it, in one way or another, in some expression, we're going to find ourselves being a part, not of the solution, but of the problem. I know a woman, she's an older woman, and she, I actually knew her for a few years before I even knew she had an older brother. And that's because I came to find out that she had such a deep hatred of her older brother that she has refused to speak to him for like something like 50 years. I know somebody else, um, I guess another thing that comes to mind when I think about these seeds that aren't actually murder is the first time um, when I was in high school, the first time one of my close friends' uh, parents got divorced. And having known these people and having felt like from the outside they looked like they had such a healthy relationship that was so normal. And then when, they, when it fell apart, it was something that really shocked me and it made me realize there must have been some seeds underneath there that led to this. Every one of us is part of the problem. Jesus says there's the kingdom of God. He offers it to us and says he wants to do this beautiful um, fabric, this beautiful connectedness. But then he tells us that the problem is that every one of us tears it. Every one of us is a part of brokenness that separates it and shreds what Jesus is trying to build and what God has intended for all of us. This kind of kingdom of God of community. Thankfully, Jesus didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount just to beat us up and tell us that we can't make it. He, said, he keeps going. In verse 23, thankfully, he says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, You, yeah, you're part of the problem, but you can be part of the solution. There's some small ways. I mean, reconciliation, apologize for stuff. One of my first bosses taught me a valuable lesson in conflict. I'm a pretty conflict-avoidant kind of person by nature. I don't like to make people mad, and if they are mad, I try and find ways to avoid their wrath. But this guy said, anytime you're in conflict with somebody, move toward the other person. Move toward them. And that has just stuck with me, this little proverb that he said, moving toward the other person. I've tried to employ that. Even um, in my present job at Starbucks, um, I've worked at a couple of different stores now, but at one store where I worked, there was this one coworker that just drove me crazy. And I'm sure none of you have a coworker that drives you crazy. Uh, so I'll tell you about mine so that maybe you can relate to that a little bit. I'm telling you, that she was the kind of person who, when you made a mistake, she always noticed. And not only did she notice, she highlighted it for everybody. And not only did she notice and highlight it for everybody, she noticed it and highlighted it for everybody and then showed you why she would never have done that. Oh my gosh. There were so many times that she just drove me crazy with that. And so, this proverb from this old boss of mine came back over and over and over into my mind as I was working with this person. Keep moving towards her because that is the right thing to do. And... I don't have a glorious ending of how we're best friends or anything like that. But I can tell you that um, I experienced God's grace in the middle of that process. And I felt like, I don't know if it changed her, but it changed me. And 
it's little things, little things. Choosing not to fire back a comment about how she messed up something else earlier that I didn't highlight then, but I'm going to highlight now if you want to play that game. Um, or, you know, bad-mouthing her to the other employees, which um, a lot of folks did because I'm not the only one that had problems with her. But small things like that that sometimes I didn't do all that well. But I, as, I, as I was looking at that relationship, that's something that I recognized was a kingdom of God way to approach that. So um, maybe that could be helpful for you. But I want you to think about who is it for you? What kind of a relationship are you in that's torn or strained? Or it might be with another individual. It could be in a community where your department really doesn't like that other department. Or your community really doesn't like that other community. Or there's some miscommunication and everybody would rather blame person X or person Y instead of saying, how can we fix this? I want you to think about that. I also want to um, invite somebody to come up and share right now who, in talking about this issue, she said that she had a story that she'd like to share about um, God's process of reconciliation in her life. So, Joanna, if you wouldn't mind coming and sharing for a few minutes. Yeah, give her a hand! I'm going to use this so I can put all my notes down. I'm Joanna. Um, If I haven't met you, I am also on the worship team with these guys that you met earlier. Um, And I wanted to share with you my story. Actually, I feel like it's more God's story. Um, There was a two-year period where my sister and I didn't talk to each other. And um, we didn't like each other. We didn't want to talk to each other. And to be honest, I really didn't want to see her. I didn't want to be in the same room with her. And all I knew was that she had hurt me, and I didn't want to be near her. And um, during this time that I wasn't talking to her, I was nursing those wounds. And I would think about how she had hurt me and the times that she had humiliated me and the times when she had dominated me, and I had felt like I had to just relent and just go with whatever she did. And um, because my parents also had a really bad relationship with her, I felt like I needed to tell them, too, what had happened. And I had been kind of a silent sufferer, so I felt validated in telling them and telling people my story because it felt like I had never been heard before. And um, so I was really afraid that if my sister and my parents reconciled that I wouldn't have a voice anymore and um, that I would be expected to be the quiet peacemaker. And... Even though I was a peacemaker, it wasn't because I was a forgiver. It was because I was a repressor. And um, I, would, I wanted to be good and obedient. And my identity was in that. My identity was in the perfect person that I wanted to be. And my sister was the opposite of that. She didn't want any part of that. She was rebellious and argumentative and loud and self-reliant and... Um, but during this time also, God was kind of stirring my heart. And even though I couldn't stand her, I also, um, was praying for her and, um, I would pray that God would bring healing to her heart and, um, that he would even use me if possible. Um, but 
What I didn't know is that God was going to take me exactly at my word and use me for that healing process. Um, on March 9th, 2010, my sister got engaged, and we had to work through some things um, as she started planning. And I thought I was willing to reconcile, but I wasn't. Um, I wanted my way to be heard, and I wanted to be seen, and I wanted to be acknowledged for all the pain that I had experienced. And um, we met with her therapist as a mediator that was unsuccessful. And so my dad suggested meeting with a mediator from Peacemaker Ministries. And um, I didn't want to do it because I was the good and perfect daughter. I did. Um, So um, each of us were encouraged to pray separately to ask God to reveal um, where we had hurt each other. And this was really, really hard for me because she really had hurt me, and it wasn't like I was nursing fake wounds. Like, she really had hurt me, and um, and so it felt really cruel and really unfair to have to look at my own heart, and um, if she didn't have to do the same thing, I don't know that I would have because, you know, I would kind of skim the pages of the book and be like, oh, yeah, maybe that's me. And then I'd get to the part where I knew it was her, and I'd be like, oh, I hope she reads this, and I hope she gets this, because this is wrong. And, um, you know, the weird thing is that for years I had said, you know, I think that I know I did things to hurt her, and I'm happy to tell her those things. And, you know, this kind of, like, self-righteous, like, I'm sure I hurt her, but she hurt me more. And... um, I didn't want my I'm sorry to be what welcomed her back in. And I was so worried that I wouldn't be heard and I wouldn't be validated. And um, eventually we did meet on a Saturday for seven hours to talk about this relationship. And um, one of the rules was that we couldn't say, this is how you hurt me. We had to only say, I know I hurt you when I did this. And um, I acknowledged to her that I had purposefully pushed her aside. I had pretended like she was invisible and that, I, that she wasn't even there. And, um, and I know that that made her feel less than and unacknowledged and not part of our family. And um, I also shared with her that I felt like this season that I'd gone through that was just really arrogant, that it, it really affected our relationship. And... Um, You know, the most difficult part of the day was that after all of this, and I'm thinking I'm so humble, and, um, you know, she ended up bringing things back. She tended to dwell on them, to bring them back into the conversation, and it was humbling, exhausting, and painful to sit in her accusations. And I walked away feeling so war-torn and so used, and, you know, I... I felt like I had to be the bigger person. And in some ways, I had to sacrifice more because the mediator asked me to be the first mover and to be the first one to say, I'm sorry. And I never realized how difficult that would be and how difficult it was. And when I finally did, it was only out of obedience to God, not out of a pure love for my sister. I didn't want to forgive her, and I was still angry with her, and I was still very angry at God because it felt like he was putting me back in a position to be under her thumb and to be under her and feeling crushed by her. Um, but the mediator encouraged me to choose forgiveness, and um, I, I began to ask God to help me and um, to share with him how I felt. 
And to be honest, the, the only thing I could do the first time I saw her was to be nice and to say hello. That was it. I couldn't even have a conversation with her. I still didn't want to talk to her. But thankfully, I was able to at least be nice. And... Um, so slowly God was providing ways also for us to demonstrate each other that we could trust each other again. Um, during her wedding, I ended up being a bridesmaid in her wedding, but that whole day I ended up being basically the maid of honor because I was doing so many things for her wedding. And I think that really broke down some walls for us because she saw that I was willing to sacrifice for her and I was willing to serve her and that God was changing me too. And Christmas time came and she part of her marriage came with a new son and so I bonded with this three-year-old boy and started to want to see him and that came with my sister and her new husband and um and slowly God was tearing down those walls and um you know, I also realized that what was really bothering me was not all these things that I had nursed. It was more the fact that I had felt abandoned by her when she was fighting with my parents. She had moved out, and um, I really depended on her emotionally, and so for her to be gone made me feel alone, and that was what I was angry about, not all these other little things that I had decided to pick out that had happened throughout our life. And um, a few months ago, I was just needing a friend, and um, I, I ended up calling her. And it was so healing to just be able to call her and to trust her and to rely on her and feel like she was there for me again. And I, we would end up talking every night for, like, two months. We talked, like, every night. It was like we couldn't get enough of each other after we had been away from each other for so long. And, you know, she would cry a lot because she felt like she had been the bad daughter and I brought that healing that she needed to know that she belonged and that she was loved. And so God was honoring my prayers for her to feel loved and to receive healing. And he was using me just as I had asked him to. Not to mention, he was piecing me back together in the process, even though I had felt like he had put me on the altar um, to be sacrificed. And you know, I'd be lying to say our relationship is perfect. We're still so different that we don't talk all the time anymore. That was just a season. Um, but, you know, now I realize that we can talk honestly, and I don't have the same expectations of her that she would be somebody that she's not. And I know that I can accept her for who she is now. And um, so just to conclude, um, I realize now that reconciliation is just so hard. <laughs> And, um, you know, I've always heard the little adage, forgiveness is a choice, not a feeling. And, um, you know, that never really brought me comfort um, when I was trying to forgive her. <laughs> um, but I did realize that forgiveness is obedience. And um, it's because Jesus commanded us to love. And um, it's because of my love for Jesus and my commitment to him that I chose to even forgive um, and it was by his power that I was able to. Um, all I could do was just surrender and cling to his good promises, um, that he would be faithful, because I didn't know if it could happen. Um, but I saw him demonstrate that he is faithful, even when he walked me through a really painful, um, humbling and um, experience that required a lot of self-denial on my part and um, I saw him heal my relationship and um, 
yeah, like I said in the beginning, I really feel like this is more of his story through my situation than it is me because I couldn't have done it without him and him working on my behalf. So that's it. Thanks for listening. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty good at stitching, as you can tell. Um, but I did want to do that as um, to highlight where we're going. That reconciliation, like you heard in pieces of Joanna's story, there's, there's three things I'd like to leave you with. Um, one is that the deeper the tear, the longer it takes to, to repair it. There's a lot of ways that um, when we're wounded or when our community or relationships are wounded, just like our bodies, if you have a bad injury, it takes time to heal. Well, our relationships, our hearts are no different. Um, although time alone does not heal, time and effort and healing uh, is what heals. Another thing that Joanna mentioned that I would like to encourage you all to think about if you have some really deep wounds or some deep brokenness in your life with a relationship maybe you thought of, is a third party really isn't a bad idea. Uh, there are people who this is what they do, mediation and reconciliation. Um, Lake Avenue has a, a counseling center here as a part of the church. Um, and if, if you're in a place with somebody or with yourself wanting to work towards somebody else, uh, that would be a great place to turn. The third thing, and I just want to illustrate this with, um, with the story. There's a, an elderly couple that I know. They've actually been married for like 60 years, so a long, long time. And as long as I've known them, as long as my family has known them, their marriage has always been really terrible. They've never really been in a place where they actually lived in harmony together. While they were under the same roof for most of their marriage, um, most of their marriage was really conflicted, really um, tough for the kids that grew up there, really hard for everybody who saw it. And until recently, like a year ago, the, the wife in this marriage... Had a, uh, she fell and broke her hip and had to go to the hospital. So before that, they'd been aging and having to spend more time in the same place, um, weren't able to go out and do things with their friends because they had to, you know, were just a little more homebound. And their relationship was particularly conflicted, that uh, any time myself or others would, would go visit them, it was uh, just a really painful experience of seeing them uh, just... The, the good days would be they would just be telling you about how much they didn't like the other person. The bad days would be when they would actually be shooting insults back and forth throughout the house. Uh, just not a pleasant place to be, not a whole, healed kind of experience. Ironically, amazingly, I still don't understand it. After she fell and broke her hip, they, um, she was in a convalescent hospital for a couple of months, recovering, and he decided that he wanted her to move back into the house to save money because it's really expensive to have her in a care home. And everybody just said, you've got to be kidding me. Like, there's no way because they couldn't get along even when they were both fully functional. Now she can barely walk. She can't do any of the cooking she used to do. I mean, he's going to have to take care of her. He doesn't even like her. Why is he going to, what makes him possibly think that he's going to be able to take care of her? I, I don't, the story isn't over yet. But somehow, in the midst of this process of him taking care of her, they've actually started getting along. Like, thanking each other for things. Like, telling each other they appreciate each other. And I didn't see it firsthand, but somebody told me that they actually saw them holding hands at one point. 
which nobody's ever seen in like the last 50 or 60 years. Like they're actually being affectionate with one another. And I tell you this story, not because one of them was reading the Bible and, and decided to commit themselves to reconciliation, although that is a good reason to do it. I'm telling you this because I'm telling you that God is on the loose. That this Jesus who tells us to be reconciled is already out there doing it. That if we look for it, it's not us who has to take the first step. It's not Jesus saying, hey, you want into my kingdom? Go get some reconciliation going on and then come back and talk to me. No, this is Jesus who says, not go and do stuff, but follow me. Watch where I'm going. Take some steps after you see where my footprints are. Because Jesus is out there reconciling. He's doing work that we might not even be aware of, but he's inviting us to enter into his kingdom. Jesus is saying, I'm starting a movement here. I'm changing the world. I'm trying to teach us how to live upside down, inside out. And let me tell you something, says Jesus. There is no tear that I cannot fix. There is no relationship that is too broken. There is no pain that is too deep. There is no memory that is too hurtful for Christ to reconcile. The prime example being the fact that our relationship with God was torn in half. That we are all broken and totally disconnected from God on our own. Jesus is the one that came and mended that relationship. And if he can mend that relationship, he can mend your relationship with that person that you've been thinking about for the last ten minutes. I want to tell you today, Jesus is already in this. If you will let him, he wants to use you to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of his reconciliation, to be a part of taking loose threads and bringing them back together. That is the kingdom of God, my friends. That is what you are invited to join. And today, I have no greater privilege than um, inviting us to watch a couple pictures of Christ's reconciliation. We've got some baptisms today. Uh, yeah, anybody else want to get excited about that? Okay, yeah, that's good, that's good. That's good. This is reconciliation. This is Christ drawing people into relationship with himself. And the fascinating thing about fabric is, and like I said, I'm not a great sewing person, seamstress, sewer, whatever. Um, the fascinating thing about fabric is two things I want to leave you thinking about. One is that the, the threads run both ways. There are horizontal threads and there are vertical threads. And that's, that's the kingdom of God. That the more integrated the horizontal relationships become with the vertical relationships, the stronger and more intricate and beautiful God's kingdom becomes. So it's not about individual me and Jesus relationships. It's about us and God relationships. The other thing and I'm not going to pull on this too hard, um, but somebody who actually knows how to sew will tell you that if a tear is mended correctly, that the strongest part of the garment is going to be where it's been repaired. And the same is true in relationships, that the relationships that are broken and then healed are not just almost as good as they were before. Most of the time they're actually stronger. So I'll leave you with those two thoughts as we transition now into, um, into our baptisms in our next area of worship.